The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Hear the word of our Lord. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been pulled to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in person who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now serves you. Not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrections of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Oh, good morning. Would you uh, pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, as always, we pray first and foremost for your name to be hallowed among us. Lord, all of our sin, all of our irreverence, all of our stupidity, all of our lack of concern, Lord, all of our rebellion. It's all swept from our hearts, Lord, when your name is hallowed within us. Lord, all our pride is humbled when your name is lifted high. Our hope truly is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, Father. We would not approach you in any other way, Lord. We don't want to approach you outside of that way that you have established through the blood of your Son, through his righteousness in our place, and the great confidence we have in him by his resurrection to come to you. We don't want to come in any other way. So, Heavenly Father, would you hallow your name among us, sanctify it, consecrate it, let its holiness be known among us. And Lord, we pray that your will would, your kingdom would come here this morning, your will would be done in this place as it is done in heaven. Let your people be willing in this day of your power. Help us worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord, we pray and we ask for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, today we're continuing to look at 
at baptism as a means of grace. Um, as I mentioned last week, maybe just if I can give some summary here before we move into the next part of last week's message. Um, they're tied together, so let me, let me summarize where we've been. I mentioned last week that the specific issue we're looking at when we're considering baptism as a means of grace is not the mode or the form of baptism. That I don't care the theological gymnastics our Presbyterian brethren have to go through to try to convince us that sprinkling is the right mode of baptism according to the scripture. Uh, it's very clear that in the Bible, those that were baptized were baptized by immersion and they were baptized confessing their sins and believing in Christ. Uh, they had believers' baptism. And, uh, so we're not, we're not talking about the form of baptism when we're talking about baptism as a means of grace. What we're trying to discern is the meaning and the importance of baptism in relation to the life of the believer. Why is baptism important? I think for most Christians, if at least in our country, I can only speak to that. Uh, maybe I can speak to what believers might think in Guatemala. But for most Christians in those two areas, if you ask them, why is baptism important? Why is it something that you need to follow through with as a believer in Christ, I think for the most part, what they would say is, well, Christ commanded that we should be baptized, and therefore, we need to be baptized. And that's true, but that doesn't really get into the real significance of what is taking place in baptism. We should be baptized because Christ has commanded us to be baptized. But why does Christ call us to be baptized? That's the better question to ask. And so we're trying to discern the meaning and the importance of baptism. Is it simply a ceremony or a ritual? Or does God use the ordinance of baptism to accomplish something in the hearts of his people? As you look at how the Holy Spirit speaks to us about baptism throughout Scripture, you come to learn that something is being accomplished in baptism in the life of the believer that cannot be accomplished in any other way. Something is happening in baptism for the believer that cannot happen in any other way because God has chosen that thing that is being accomplished in baptism only to be accomplished through baptism. There's no substitute for that. It's very clear when you look at New Testament language, when it's talking about baptism, that it's more than just an empty ceremony or a ritual. One example of that being our verse that we're focusing on today in 1 Peter 3.21, where it declares to us very emphatically, baptism now saves you. Now, we're going to look at what exactly that means today. Um, but I think it's important to make sure we understand that that is the plain reading of the text. It can't mean anything other than what it says. 
or at least we ought not interpret it in any other way than according to what it says. So now we're coming and we're asking, what exactly does this mean? That we are, that baptism now saves us. Last week we saw how some in church history have sought to answer that question. You remember the Roman Catholics, Roman Catholic position is that baptism is important because the act of baptism itself is what saves you. It's what regenerates you. It's the laver of regeneration. So when you are brought to baptism and you are sprinkled with that water, you are being transformed from your state. You are being translated from your fallen state in Adam into a redeemed state in Christ. Ex opera operato. That's the the, the phrase that would go along with that. That baptism works to accomplish salvation in the infant simply by the rite of baptism being performed, by the work being worked. Now, the Lutherans and the Anglicans were somewhat similar to that, but with a major difference. As Luther said, baptism is only effectual for those ends when it's accompanied with the right proclamation of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and faith. You say, well, Luther, why then do you baptize infants? Well, because he believes infants can have faith. Anglicans took a different slant on that. They say, well, no, it's the faith of the guardians. It's the faith of those who are presenting the baby to be baptized that is standing in place of that infant's lack of ability to make that decision. And you can read that in the uh, Book of Common Prayer on that section on baptism. I'm pulling all of these things from their sources. I'm not making this stuff up, okay? Presbyterians, and you could throw John Owen and the Congregationalist into this camp. Um, Baptism is a sign and a seal of the promise of salvation in the life of the infant. Therefore, when when the infant is baptized, it is not only signifying that salvation is theirs, what, what is pictured in salvation is, belongs to them, the cleansing, but it's actually sealing that promise to that infant that's being baptized. And as I mentioned last week, if you ask them, well, what exactly is being accomplished in that that's not already true for any lost sinner in the world, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, well, I have not had an adequate answer given for that. So. Now, we ended looking at the the Baptist position. The Baptists took a different position on this. They understood that there was nothing magical taking place in baptism itself. The ordinance of baptism is simply a means of grace to the heart of a true believer because of what baptism signifies. So baptism becomes a means of grace because of what is being pictured through baptism. When what is pictured in baptism meets with a heart of faith, In the person being baptized, it becomes this means of grace, strengthening and encouraging this believer in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I read for you the statement from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith where they describe baptism as being a sign to the person baptized of his fellowship with Christ, of his spiritual union with Christ, and also of the remission of that person's sins, and then finally, a sign of that person's commitment to give himself up to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did you guys hear that last one? Are you with me or are you zoning yet? 
It's not only a sign of a reality that has taken place in the life of the believer, being united to Christ, being forgiven of sins in Christ, but it is also a sign of the believers giving him or herself up to a life of obedience and service to God. Now you see those two elements there. It's that last part that takes our understanding of baptism out of being mere ceremony and puts it into the category of something that is being accomplished through the act of baptism. Not only is baptism confirming to the believer that is being baptized the spiritual realities that are present in their union with Christ, but it is also a sign that is being utilized by the person being baptized to confirm his or her commitment to God through Jesus Christ. I mentioned Dr. Spiney. I have no idea how to say his name. It's S-P-I-N-N-E-Y. Dr. Spiney. I, Spinney? Whatever it is. Last week, he, I mentioned that he says, in baptism, God is speaking to us and we are speaking back to God. To the heart of the believer in baptism, God is speaking of and confirming all the benefits of salvation that are in Christ and affirming to the person being baptized that those benefits belong to that person so long as baptism is being pursued in faith. And when the believer in faith identifies him or herself with Christ in baptism, he or she is speaking back to God and saying, yes, Father, on these terms, I will have you and I will receive the blessings of salvation you've promised in your son. And I mentioned at the end last week, baptism is like a handshake, right? It's like a ceremony of a handshake. There's nothing magical about a handshake, but a handshake is still communicating something between the two people who shake hands. Well, so it is in baptism. God makes promises to us in his son and as we begin to believe in those promises by the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives and hearts, baptism is like shaking hands with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and saying, I agree with you on this. So in that sense, baptism is a means of grace for the believer. That's what the Baptist held to. Now what I want to do for the rest of the morning is look at the different ways in Scripture, some of them anyway, that the significance and meaning of baptism is portrayed. And so I'm going to highlight four things this morning. Um, if you could go to the next slide, uh, Stacy. Thank you. So here are the main points. I figure this might be easier uh, for you guys because I don't have it on your paper. Main points. The significance of baptism, it is a means of becoming a disciple. That's point one. Point two, it's the means of clothing ourselves with Christ in faith. Point three, it's the means of joining ourselves to the church. And point four, and ultimately, the most significant point about baptism is that it is the means that God has appointed for us to call upon him for salvation. And we'll get to that in a minute. Let's look at that first one. Point number one. Baptism is significant in the scripture because 
the Holy Spirit tells us it is the means of becoming a disciple, at least initially. We see this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You guys are familiar with this passage known as the Great Commission. Jesus came in his resurrection glory up to his disciples, now apostles, the eleven, and he spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This is the great commission. It's the mission that Christ has commanded his church to fulfill in this intervening time between his ascension in glory and his return. What are we to be about? We're to be about this right here, making disciples of all nations. Now, the heart of the commission is that command to make disciples. But there are two specific ways that Jesus says that work is to be accomplished. Now, what is assumed here is that as we make disciples, we are actually proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. We're going out and we are declaring the death, the burial, the resurrection, the righteous and holy life of the Lord Jesus. And we are declaring his promise to save all of those who will believe in him. Now, as we proclaim that message and people's hearts are pricked over their sin and they're wondering, brethren, tell us what we are to do. What do we tell them to do next? Well, according to Jesus, the next step in believing is being baptized. After preaching the gospel to the nations, those who will respond in faith to that message about Jesus, first of all, must submit to him in faith in the waters of baptism. And then secondly, they must live a submissive life to him in learning how to observe all that he has commanded them. Now, being taught to observe what Christ has commanded us, that is vital to discipleship. If you are not striving to learn how the Lord Jesus Christ would have you live your life, then you are not his disciple. You cannot be his disciple and call him Lord if you are not obeying him as Lord. That's Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you do not do what I say? Obedience to Christ's commands is absolutely essential to discipleship. But so is baptism. In fact, I would say that before you can move on into learning how to observe everything that Christ has commanded, you need to submit to him first of all in the waters of baptism. That's the first thing you need to focus on as one who has had this renewed heart by the Holy Spirit and is now believing in Christ. Now, why is baptism to be the first step of discipleship for someone who believes in the gospel? Well, it's because of what baptism signifies. Baptism is a sign of our submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, not only as our Savior, but as our King. So I love about the Gospel of Matthew. Everything in the, that's why it's my favorite gospel account. Everything in the gospel of Matthew is designed to magnify the kingship of Christ. That Jesus Christ is king over all the nations, right? This is Psalm 2. The gospel of Matthew is simply explaining that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. He is God's anointed king. He's his chosen king. He is now, after his resurrection, the one who is seated in Zion, God's holy hill. 
Jesus is the one whom all the nations are commanded to bow to and be obedient to and kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. All of that is fulfilled in Jesus. And as He gives this commission to His disciples, Jesus is calling His disciples to be the continuation of the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Go out into the nations and declare to them the promise that everyone who takes refuge in Me will be saved. That's how Psalm 2 ends, right? The whole Gospel of Matthew is designed to exalt the kingship of Christ. And what we are doing when we proclaim that kingship and people believe in that kingship as a result of the Holy Spirit using the word preached to convict them of their sin and draw them to the Savior... What we are doing in baptism is we are giving our allegiance to Jesus as our King. We're fulfilling Isaiah 45, 22 through 45. We are coming to Him, all the ends of the earth. Come to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. For I am God and there is no other, the Lord declares. For the promise has gone forth, it will not return void, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Well, when we enter into the waters of baptism... We are bowing our knees and we are swearing our allegiance to God's chosen king. That's what Andrew Fuller wrote. I have this on a slide. Andrew Fuller, anyone know who Andrew Fuller was? Is? Was? He's a Baptist pastor in the late 1700s into the early 1800s. He was the most widely known and recognized Baptist theologian uh, until Charles Spurgeon. So Spurgeon took the crown. But Andrew Fuller was the most widely recognized and well-known preacher up to that point. Andrew Fuller said of baptism, baptism is our oath of allegiance to the King of Zion. In fact, that's why the ordinance of baptism came to be called a sacrament. You know what a sacrament is? Well, it comes from a Latin word that is used for a military pledge of oath. And when a soldier would join the military, he would pledge his oath to, let's use the Roman army as an example, he would pledge his oath to Caesar in fulfilling Caesar's will. I had to pledge an oath to this country and to defending the Constitution when I joined the Marine Corps. Same type of idea here. It became, it became known as a sacrament because of what it is. It's a pledge and an oath to Christ as king. And so after hearing the message of the gospel and believing in it, the first step in responding to the gospel in faith is to submit to it through baptism. I almost asked, do you have any questions about that? If you do, come talk to me afterward. That's number one. Significance of baptism. It is the means of becoming a disciple, of submitting to Christ as our Lord and our Savior. Alongside being a sign of that submission to Christ, the New Testament also says, secondly, that baptism is a means of clothing ourselves with Christ by faith. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 27, Paul writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, this is not speaking of something that is accomplished merely in the act of baptism itself. 
It's speaking of a baptism that is a saving response of faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't become sons of God through baptism. We become sons of God through faith, right? But the outward expression that we have indeed become sons of God through faith is by responding in obedience to his command to be baptized. To, in faith, take Christ upon ourselves and clothe ourselves with him. That's what Paul is saying here. What happens in baptism? When someone has true faith in Jesus Christ and submits to him in baptism, that person is taking up Christ like a garment and clothing him or herself with Christ. So when you go down into the waters of baptism in the name of the triune God with the empty hands of faith, what you are doing, you are grabbing on to all that Christ is and all that Christ has promised to be for you. And in faith, you are taking all of it up and wrapping yourself with it. You're saying, Christ has sworn to be my righteousness. When you go down into the waters of baptism, you are holding on to that fact by faith and you are wrapping that around you as your only hope in the presence of God. When you hear the word of God proclaim, Jesus Christ is my only hope of being saved from my sins. His blood is the only payment that could be received to the Father by the Father to pay for the debt that I owe to justice. When God declares that in the word of God, you take that promise to yourself and you go down into the waters of baptism and you wrap that promise around you as your only hope of forgiveness of sins. You hear the word of God declaring the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension into glory and his promise to return to take you unto himself in his father's house. You take that promise around you. You wrap it around you and you identify with it in faith when you go down into the waters of baptism. That's what you're doing when you are baptized. You are clothing yourself with everything that Christ is and everything he's promised to be. Colossians 3, Colossians 3 puts it. Basically, what you're doing in baptism is you are answering God. You are answering to something that God has already done in you. So in Colossians 3, 3, when God raises dead sinners up out of their sin and brings them into new spiritual life and unites them to his son, he brings them into such an intimate fellowship and union with Christ that verse 3 says that in God's eyes, our life is hidden with God in Christ. See, there is such this intimate connection that the Father performs in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit, uniting us to Jesus, that when God looks upon us, he only ever sees us as those who are hidden in his Son. And what we are doing in baptism... When God has performed that work in our hearts, we are answering God. We are answering back to God in light of that work. And we are willfully going down into those waters and hiding ourselves in his son. It's our saving response to the saving work that God has already accomplished in us. So what does baptism signify according to the scriptures? It signifies that we are clothing ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Any questions?
Number three. Yeah, keep them to yourself. <laughs> Number three. Hello? Maybe someone's watching and decided to call, uh, call you and say, hey, could you ask him this? Number three. Baptism is also, according to the scriptures, the means of joining ourselves to Christ's church. And when I speak of this, I'm not speaking of spiritually joining ourselves to the church. I'm talking about uniting together with the saints. Okay? Physically uniting together with them. Identifying with them. You remember in Acts 2.38, the day of Pentecost, when Peter's preaching this magnificent sermon of the exaltation of Jesus, the great hope of the gospel, of salvation and forgiveness of sin to the very ones who had crucified the Lord. He's preaching to them and they're struck in their heart. And he comes to them and he says, what should we do? Tell us what to do, Peter. How do we remedy this? Peter says, repent of your sin. And then show that repentance by being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now verse 41 goes on to say, So then, those who had received his word, that is those who are believing the gospel, those who are responding in faith to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who had received his word, they manifested that reception of the word by being baptized. And then, that day, the text says, there were added about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church. Now, this close connection between the statements here make, makes clear that the means of being added to the church in a, in a formal and official sense, the means of being added to the church formally was the ordinance of baptism. Baptism does not make a person part of the church spiritually. That's the work of regeneration. That's the work of being converted to Christ through faith and repentance. Right? That's accomplished by the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again. But for those who are born again in Christ, those who have been united to Him in faith, and those who have been made new creatures by His saving grace, they are to testify of that reality in the waters of baptism and unite themselves openly and visibly with those who have made the same profession. The baptism does not save anyone. We are saved by exercising faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to keep in mind that in the early church, a person would never have been admitted to the membership of a local church apart from bearing witness to their faith through baptism. There is no such thing in the New Testament as someone being recognized as a Christian who has not yet submitted to the waters of baptism. You won't find that anywhere apart from extreme cases, like I mentioned last week, the thief hanging on the cross. Well, that's not going to be the context in which most of us come to faith in Christ Jesus, right? The norm is to identify with Christ by faith through the waters of baptism. And not until a person has done that in the New Testament was a person recognized as truly being a Christian. Now, the early church would never have affirmed a person to have saving faith 
who at the same time refused to be baptized in the name of Christ, or who refused to publicly and visibly join themselves to Christ's church. So if someone was not willing to publicly identify with Christ and declare his lordship in believer's baptism, the church would not publicly identify with that person as a believer. Now, broadly speaking, these are three things that are signified in baptism. And I could pull out more specific statements in Scripture. But in the New Testament, when the New Testament describes the significance of baptism, and it uses another description that I think gets to the heart of how baptism is a means of grace in the Christian life. Everything I've said so far is, is affirmed in Scripture, it's true, but this one really captures how baptism is used by the Lord as a means of grace. And I believe it's point number four, that God, a baptism is God's appointed means of calling upon Him for salvation. Now, I know this may be jarring to some of you, Please know, you can come talk to me after this sermon. I'll tell you more about why I believe this. But hopefully this will be clear enough. In Acts 22.16, Paul is recounting um, when he was saved, the Lord had sent Ananias to him, declaring to him here in verse 16, Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, this is a significant verse, as I said, for understanding the purpose of baptism. Why is baptism so important for the Christian? Well, according to this verse, it's because it is God's appointed means of calling upon his name for salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, this verse is it's in the middle of a record of what Ananias said to Paul after he was converted. I just mentioned that. You remember Paul, then Saul, at his conversion. He was blinded by the light of Christ's resurrection glory when he was traveling on the road to Damascus. He was knocked off his horse by the glory of Christ being manifested in front of him. And he spent three days fasting and praying and trying to come to an understanding of how this Jesus of Nazareth was actually the Lord of glory. And after those three days, Christ sent his servant Ananias to lay hands on Paul to pray over him and then to baptize him as a new disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, Roman Catholicism points to this verse and says, see, baptism is actually removing a person's sins. Or else, why would Ananias say this to Paul? Why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. See, baptism washes your sins away. Well, we could respond to that first by saying, notice that that's an act of faith that's being done on Paul's part, not an act of faith being done by someone else on Paul's behalf. But secondly, you notice that this, what this verse is not saying, it is not saying that baptism itself washes away our sins. It is telling us that baptism is a means of calling on the name of the Lord to wash away our sins. In baptism, we are calling upon the name of the Lord and asking him to cleanse us from all of our sinful stains through that cleansing blood of his son. 
to cleansing from sin, if you trace that throughout Scripture, being cleansed from your sin, it doesn't come by being dunked underwater. It's a blessing that is granted by the Lord to those who call upon Him. This is a great truth of Psalm 86.5, my favorite verse, almost my favorite verse in all Scripture. In fact, it may be. You, O Lord, are good, and you are ready to forgive. Right? He's not hesitant to forgive anyone. You, O Lord, you are good, and you are ready to forgive abundant and loving kindness for all who call upon you. So who are the receptors? Who are those who receive the abundance of God's loving kindness? Who are those who receive his goodness as it manifests in forgiveness of sins? It's those who call upon him. And you come to Romans 10, where Paul is using this same language. In verses 12 through 13, he says, The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. If you call upon the name of the Lord, believing in his goodness, believing in his promise that if you come to him, he will forgive you, then truly you will experience that grace. That's what Paul is saying here. The same Lord is Lord of all. He's not, he's not stingy and he's not showing any type of special favor for any person over another. Anyone who comes to Jesus and calls upon his name for salvation, God will save that person. And then Paul says, he quotes from Psalm, uh, uh, I believe Psalm 34, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13. Now in our modern day, you guys still with me? Yeah, praise the Lord. In our modern day, what we've done with these verses, we have turned these verses into a justification for getting people to pray the sinner's prayer or something like the sinner's prayer. We coax people, we urge them, we come upon them, we say, Do you want to be saved? Well, yeah, uh, if salvation means not going to hell, then of course I want to be saved. Okay, then if you want to be saved, pray this prayer. Repeat after me. Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I know Jesus died for my sins. He rose again from the dead. I come to you asking for forgiveness and salvation. Amen. Now, is that wrong in and of itself? No, it's not wrong in and of itself. How it's been used, and especially in the South, the churches where, where I, the church where I was saved and the churches where I used to run, the sinner's prayer gave more people false assurance of faith than anything else I've ever seen in the church. No, I prayed that prayer. I prayed it when I was 10 years old on Granny's knee. Don't tell me I'm not a believer. I asked Jesus to save me, and this verse says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But wait a second, but, but, but your life doesn't show anything of, of a love for Jesus. You, you're not, you, don't, you don't show any kind of heart being broken whenever you sin. There, there's no desire, there's nothing manifesting in your life that says you are pursuing the Lord because you love Him and you want to be with Him and you want to honor Him. I don't see any of that going on in your life. Well, that's fine, that's true, but you can't tell me I'm not saved because I asked Jesus to save me, and he's going to save me. If he doesn't, he's a liar. Well, my friend, I think you're misreading these verses. Can I vent for a second, too? You know the problem with stuff like that? 
You've taken a biblical truth and you've twisted it into something that's unbiblical. It is biblically true that if you call upon the Lord for salvation, how are you going to call upon Him? You're going to call upon Him in prayer. It is biblically true that if you pray to the Lord with genuine faith and a true and sincere desire to be saved, a true faith in Jesus, it's true. You will be saved. The Lord will save you. But what happens is once we make that break and we allow something twisted, unbiblically twisted to enter into the life of the church, it eventually gets down to something like this. And I know because I was kicked out of this evangelistic crusade for this. It turns into something like, you want to be saved? Pray this prayer. Did you pray that prayer? Raise your hand and let me know if you prayed that prayer. Well, maybe you're not comfortable praying that prayer. Maybe you're just not comfortable raising your hand and letting me know that you prayed that prayer. I'll tell you what. Why don't you just, you just, you know, it goes from going down front, raising your hand, it gets all the way down to, if you're not comfortable coming down front, you're not comfortable raising your hand and testifying that you prayed that prayer, then you just text this cell phone number on the screen behind me and you let me know that you prayed that prayer and then I know that you're saved. When I heard that I was livid. And I got kicked out of that evangelistic organization, uh, that crusade. My point is, we've taken something that's biblical and we've turned it into something that's unbiblical. We've taken a biblical principle and twisted it into an unbiblical practice. I think we should come back to the scriptures and recognize that in the New Testament, consistently... The means of calling upon God for salvation in the name of Jesus Christ is not the recitation of some prescribed prayer. In the New Testament, consistently, the means of calling upon God for salvation is baptism. Baptism is the outward sign of the inward disposition. It's an outward sign that is manifesting for all to see that you are confessing Christ Jesus to be Lord and Savior and you are calling upon Him in the presence of heaven and earth to be your Savior. In other words, if your soul is longing to be saved in Christ, God wants that desire to be expressed through baptism. This is what 1 Peter 3.21 is getting at to make our circle back to our original verse. 1 Peter 3.21 is talking about this whenever it's talking about baptism as being something that now saves you. It's not talking about the act of baptism in and of itself. You notice that because Paul says baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, I'm not simply talking about being dunked in water as the means that saves you. Rather, it is baptism that now saves you to the degree that it is an actual, sincere appealing to God for a clean conscience. See, baptism can be said to save you only to the degree that it is used as a tool to call upon God in the name of Christ for salvation. And notice, I want you to notice this too. In this verse, Peter makes very clear that it is not an effective tool in and of itself. Baptism is not going to make a change in you in and of itself. It must be met with faith. 
because it is only baptism that now saves you as an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to be believing in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord of glory in order to use baptism as a means to call upon God for salvation. And so when a person believes in the Lord Jesus as the one who died for sins and the one who rose again as a victorious Savior, as they are drawn, to, drawn near to him in that faith, they are to call upon him as their Savior in baptism. And so baptism is a means of grace when it is used to express a person's faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and to call upon him in faith to be saved. So those are the four things. Now I want to come to the conclusion. In closing, after what we've seen, how then are we to understand baptism as a means of grace for the believer? When a person in genuine faith comes to identify with and lay hold of Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism, in that moment... God, by the Holy Spirit, makes baptism a means of strengthening and growing that believer's heart in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think John Owen said it well. If we were to ask, well, what is specifically, what is the grace that we're growing in when we as believers submit to baptism? What are, what's happening? What are we experiencing? What's going on? I think John Owen would an answer that well in chapter 1 of his book, Communion with God, when he said that the way and the means by which the saints enjoy communion with God are in all the spiritual and holy actings and outgoings of their souls in those graces and by those ways which God has instituted for his worship. Did you get that? A little wordy. What he's saying here is, the way that the believer has greater communion, a sense of greater communion and fellowship with God, is by in faith, worshiping God according to the means he has ordained. And so what's happening in baptism According to Owen, now he didn't say this in relation to baptism, but if we take that principle of communion with God and we apply it here to baptism, Owen says our communion with God consists in his communication of himself to us. That is, he's making himself known to us. And he's done that in Christ, amen? God has made himself known to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is communicating himself to us. And our communion with God is made, is, is sealed, is experienced in greater measure when we, on our return, offer that which he requires and accepts. So God has made himself known to us, and we respond to that and enjoy fellowship with him when we offer back to him what he requires. I can talk about that more later. I think in principle, this is just getting at what Jesus says in John 14, 23. That the pathway to greater and deeper communion with God is the path of obedience. 
Jesus says, if you love me, anyone who loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will do what? We will come to him and we will make our abode with him. I want you to know something. That is not, that is not a truth that you have to try to convince yourself is real when it's happening. When the Lord is coming to make his abode with his people, when he is awakening them to a fuller sense of his nearness and his goodness and his kindly disposition towards them and his son, you don't have to convince yourself that it's real when the Holy Spirit is awakening you to that reality. And Jesus says that blessing of fellowship with the Father and the Son is the result of obedience. I think that's what's being applied to baptism. Now, in closing, two principles. <laughs> We're getting there. How should we respond to this truth? I have two groups in mind. For those who have not yet been baptized as believers in Christ, what should you do in response to this? Well, first of all, you should be turning away from sin. And you should be rising up and fleeing to the Lord Jesus Christ for refuge. In Peter's words, you should repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, turn in your own hearts to the Lord. Take refuge with him with a genuine desire to be saved from your sins and then come and call upon his name in the manner that he has ordained. Come to him in the way that the Holy Spirit will be pleased to own and to bless. Come to him and call upon his name in baptism. Some of you have been believers for a long time, maybe. Maybe you haven't been baptized. Let me offer to you some encouraging words from Charles Spurgeon. And I'm going to quote him so that if you get angry at anybody, you're going to get angry at him. <laughs> if you refuse to be baptized in the name of Christ and yet claim to be a believer, you need to understand what you're saying to God, and you need to understand what God is saying to you. Spurgeon said in his sermon, Belief, Baptism, and Blessing, he says this, Ah, dear friends, there are some of you here who have never come out as Christians. You are what I like to call rats behind the wall, or black beetles that come out at night when there is no one else around you. You get a bit of food, and then you go back behind the wall again. You never say what you are, Spurgeon says. You never come out publicly on Christ's side. I'm not going to condemn you. I wish that you would condemn yourselves. He went on to say just a couple sentences later, if you have not faith enough in Christ to say that you believe in him through baptism, then I do not think that you have enough faith in Christ to take you to heaven. Isn't that principle true? Jesus says, you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father and the holy angels. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father and the holy angels. 
What are you doing in baptism? Are you not confessing Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior over you? Now, by extension, what are you saying to God when you refuse to be baptized? When you refuse to bear public witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism? I I meet so many people. Well, no, I can't say so many people. I have met some people before who have declared themselves to be avid believers, strong believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are going to stand firm when persecution comes, baby. I'm going to stand firm for Christ. And yet I find myself, as I investigate, two people, I found out those who were like that had not yet identified with Christ in baptism. It's like, my friend, if you can't identify with Christ in baptism publicly, what makes you think you're going to resist persecution publicly? You can't do the lesser. What are you going to do when the greater comes? So when we refuse to be baptized, what we're saying to God is, I know you have spoken in your son. I know you've given me these promises in Jesus Christ. But I am refusing to believe in them enough to come close the deal with you. I'm not ready to take your hand and shake it on these terms in baptism. The sad reality is that most people who have not yet been baptized and yet claim themselves to be believers think that they can still hold on to those blessings without shaking the hand of the Savior who's going to give them. Andrew Fuller, at Baptist again, he said that refusing to submit to Christ by submitting to his appointed sign of baptism is, in effect, refusing to submit to what the sign signifies. So refusing to submit to the sign is, in effect, refusing to submit to what the sign signifies. What does the sign of baptism signify? Signifies salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and your commitment and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you refuse to submit to the sign, you are, in effect, refusing what the sign signifies. Let me end on one more, one more quote for you guys who may be believers or who are not yet believers and have not been baptized in Christ's name. Let me give you one more quote from Spurgeon, and then I'll shift gears. That is what you are saying to God when you refuse to be baptized. What is God saying to you when you refuse to submit to Christ in baptism? Well, again, Spurgeon says this, and I'll let him say it. The promise of eternal life, here's Spurgeon, the promise of eternal life is not made to a faith which is never avowed. You know what avowed means? It means openly stated or publicly declared. Spurgeon says, allow me to say that over again. The promise of salvation is not made to a faith which is never avowed. In other words, if you're not willing to openly avow declare your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism, then you need to question whether you have a genuine faith that will actually lead to salvation. Now, if you have been baptized in the name of the triune God and you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, baptism should still function as a means of grace for you. We're going to end on this. Bear with me. Your baptism should still function as a means of grace because... Remembering your baptism is remembering the day when you made your vows to the King of Heaven. You pledged your allegiance to Him in baptism. 
You shook God's hand in agreement that He will save you in His Son and you will be saved in His Son. Willingly saved. And that day signals that by faith you decisively hid yourself in safety and refuge that God has provided for you in Jesus Christ. That's what happened when you were baptized. You were hiding yourself in Christ. You were shaking God's hand. You were receiving His promised blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Now, how does that become a means of grace for you now? Because baptism is a one-time event. Well, it becomes a means of grace by realizing more and more what was actually accomplished when you were baptized and then determining to live the rest of your days in greater and increasing conformity to what you professed in your baptism. Let me read that again. Baptism becomes a means of grace for those of us who have been baptized maybe a long time ago. Baptism remains a means of grace when we realize more and more what was actually being accomplished when we were baptized and then determining to live the rest of our days in greater and in increasing conformity to what we professed in our baptism. Yeah? Amen? Amen. Well, I pray that no matter what group you fall into, the Lord, by His grace, will make baptism a means of grace in your own life and that He'll strengthen your faith and your resolve to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we always, as always, come to you needy and dependent and yet hopeful, hoping in your great promises, Lord. Or we confess that baptism in itself does not save us, but it is what you delight to see in the heart of one who is truly believing in your Son. To use baptism as a means of calling upon you and shaking your hand in agreement that Jesus Christ truly is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I pray that you would bless us no matter who we are, what category we fall into. I pray you would strengthen our faith. Grow us in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, even by means of baptism. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Benediction from, comes from 2 Peter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.